0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: The inner voice is part of that verbal side of the thinking process. And oftentimes we are working through ideas using language and creating new connections and stories and integrating information. We're using our inner voice to simulate possibilities for the future. So when I'm trying to like think creatively about how to put together a new creative presentation, I'm gaming it out and simulating it with my inner voice. When I'm trying to work through a problem that I need to work through in order to get to a creative solution, I'm often relying on my inner voice to create a narrative to help me make sense of what is happening. So your inner voice is involved in that creative process in in a variety of different ways. Because your inner voice is involved in thinking, period. This is one of the reasons why it's so unfortunate when people get stuck in that ruminative mode because then it it precludes you from using your inner voice for those creative pursuits because that resource that we possess is now being used for the dark side of worry and rumination.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com.
1: Ethan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. I've been looking, looking forward to the conversation all morning.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a book out called Chatter, which I probably read, I think, almost 15, 20 months ago. And as I was saying to you, what triggered my memory of it was seeing it on somebody else's bookshelf. And I knew that I wanted to talk to you because I think that this voice in our heads is something that all of us deal with. But uh given the nature of your work and what you do, I wanted to start by asking you what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you ended up making with your life and
1: career? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I was a member of a few different social groups in high school. Um, uh, so uh, I, I, I hung out with, with athletes. I hung out with theater people. And I ho- hung out with brainiacs and, uh, in the Venn diagram of overlapping circles that if you put each of those groups in overlapping circles of a Venn diagram, there wasn't a huge amount of overlap. So, um, I was pretty flexible in, in, in interacting with people who had different kinds of interests. And, um, how did that impact my, my, what I, my choices later on in life? Was that the question? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think, I think those early experiences navigating different social groups, uh, helped me become comfortable speaking and interacting with people, um, who came from different walks of life and had different interests. And I, and I guess that has been a a kind of feature of my, my existence, um, ever since. If, if we went back even further before high school, I actually went to a, um, a religious school growing up, which was interesting because I was not religious at all. And so I had this interesting experience of during day when I go to school, we'd be learning about, about, um, you know, biblical studies and things like that. And then I'd come home and hang out with my buddies who came from all different walks of life. And so, um, I think really throughout my life, I've been pretty comfortable moving back and forth between different circles. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because
0: I, in my mind, right when I heard those three groups, I was like, wait a minute. In every one of those three groups, this self-talk plays a role in performance for brainiacs, for theater people and for athletes. But let's come back to that. Um, that ability to navigate multiple social groups and be sort of a social chameleon. I feel like I've seen a handful of people who have that. My sister had it. Uh, she was just popular in high school, even though she denies it to this day. Uh, excuse me. But um, I wonder, is that something that is innate or something that can be learned? And if it is something that we can learn, how does a person go about doing it if it is not innate to who they are naturally? Well,
1: I I, I think that it's um like so many complex um psychological skills, if you want to call it. It's there's probably a little bit of of innateness to it, uh, a little bit of learning, and a mixture of the two. Um, you know, I think what allows me to, to navigate different spheres and what I would recommend to others who maybe are, are trying to do that is to put on your curiosity hat. I'm genuinely curious about other people and, and their lives and their experiences. I want to know, um, about them. And th- this is not a psychologist talking about like getting inside your head. I want to, you know, know your deepest thoughts. Yeah. Sometimes I do want to know about those things when I'm doing research, but, um, but I generally am just interested in, in understanding how other people see and experience the world. And that makes it really easy for me to, um, participate and get immersed in, in conversations with other people who are willing to engage with me. Uh, at that level. So I think that's, that curiosity is one piece of it. And, and the other, the other attribute that I think is useful is knowing just enough about those different groups and their interests to, to spark conversation, uh, around, uh, issues that they care about. And, um, and I, it's not really that hard to, to, to do that, you know, reading the paper, keeping up with, with, um, uh, the cultural zeitgeist, things like that. Um, provide plenty of ammunition to have those kinds of conversations. Yeah, I mean, so that raises numerous
0: questions about sort of the way we consume information today and how uh, we have sort of almost like this sort of, you know, inherent confirmation bias in everything that we consume because of the way the internet has been set up, which almost, I think, goes against that whole idea of understanding how other people think, having, you know, conversations and dialogue, people who disagree with you. Um, And so a couple of things I wonder, you mentioned curiosity, and I know that you are an educator. And this is something that I talked to almost every educator about. My dad's a college professor. uh, But the reason this just came up was I had Craig Wright, who wrote this book, The Hidden Habits of Genius. And he said something on our conversation that really struck me. He said, you know, there's no university that has a course on curiosity, even though it's this fundamental skill, because I think in in my mind, at least, when I was in college at Berkeley, it was just, you know, choose from the options that are put in front of you and figure out what careers they'll lead to. And I know University of Michigan is kind of considered the, the Berkeley of the Midwest. Uh, but as an educator, if you were tasked with redesigning the entire education system from the ground up, which I realize is a massive question we could talk about for an hour, <laughs> um, what would you change? And, and what do you see that is working now and
1: what isn't working? Uh, well, that's, that's such a big question. I mean. We could talk about it for for you know a hundred hours, not just one hour. Um, so you know uh, i I guess a few of the things that I would want to emphasize are uh a focus on on learning, cultivating interests, going deep to understand ideas and have the the emphasis be on on that kind of of critical thinking more so than than rote memorization. Uh, you know, there are, there are certain courses that do require you to memorize facts uh, about how things, um, work, so to speak. But I think when you get to, to my side of the world and we're talking about psychology and neuroscience, um, a lot of what I try to do in the classroom is really push students to, to find an interest and then go deep. When new graduate students come into my lab, one I I'm actually jealous of them uh and and the opportunity that is right before them because what I invite them to do is we start talking about what their big picture interests are, having to do with the human mind emotion and how you can manage the mind and emotion to hopefully make the world a better place and um help people live better lives. And the moment we find some spark of an interest, I I invite them to dive into the literature. And, you know, read one article and then, and then find another lead in that article and it'll take you somewhere else, which will take you somewhere and follow that, that, that trail of crumbs until you get to a point where you now have this unique understanding of, of this issue. It's a unique understanding that no one else in the world has because you've, you've curated the knowledge on your own. And, and now you're in a position to. To weigh in on the issue that's driving you. I think the more we can do to give students that kind of experience of being an explorer of ideas, um, the the better. Uh at least again when it comes to uh the kind of work that that I do and I'm interested. And and I and I actually do think that a lot of professors do try to give their students these kinds of experiences uh in, in upper level seminars and certainly in graduate school hmm. So, what is the challenge with doing
0: that in undergraduate education? I mean, obviously, I know Michigan is probably very similar to Berkeley in terms of the fact that you go into an undergraduate classroom. There's like 900 people here, and you know I'm a number. I literally, you're a number. You don't even have a name that they associate you with when you take a test. They're like, "This is your student ID number." To the point where I had a, a cousin who told me a guy was sitting in a final exam. Professor's like, "The exam's been over for 30 minutes. You got to turn this thing in." And he was yelling at the guy. I walked up to the front of the class, stuffed his blue book in the pile. He's like, do you even know my
1: name? And he just left. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think when you're dealing with a large university, there are multiple constraints and, um, you know, I think the role of introductory level classes is, is really to, to spark interests and excitement. So, um, I actually teach a course here called the Teaching Academy, which welcomes first year graduate students, all first year graduate students in the psych department take this class. And we go over what what the goals, uh, what your goals should be as an educator when teaching different kinds of courses. And the temptation that a lot of people experience when they start teaching big intro classes is to be really comprehensive. And what I'd like to remind these incoming graduate students of is, is the fact that any topic that you have a day dedicated to, that can be exploded into a full semester long course. So there's no, you can't possibly cover all of the material for any different topics. So instead, I think what, what the goal should be for those intro level courses is just give students a taste, wet their appetite, make them a somewhat informed consumer of this, of the material so that they then know where to, where to follow up, um, and where to go next to, to satisfy their appetite for, for this, these topics further. And then once you get them in an upper level class, I think, uh, universities can make it easier on professors to do the kinds of things I'm talking about by, by keeping the classes smaller. I think it is unfortunate that we, we don't get to have, at least at the large universities, this is different at, at smaller schools, but oftentimes there are wait, most seminars are waitlisted and, and we've got 30 students yeah, at a minimum in those seminars and, and the kind of conversation you can have with 30 students is just fundamentally different than the kind of conversation you have with 12 or 15 students. Uh-huh. And so I think just, just actually having, having smaller classes is, would be one huge, uh, boon to this learning, learning process. I also think doing more to get professors in the class, uh-huh. getting people who are actually producing the knowledge giving students access to those individuals would be would be important as well this is not to say that um, lecturers lectures aren't phenomenal at what they do they are and i think there's a role for both of them in the classroom now yeah.
2: when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Bombus, Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit Stripe.com slash Tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, how do we get from this position of of sort of being explorers of ideas, which I feel was Common early on in the development of the education system. Correct me if I'm wrong. To this sort of rote learning, where we're just kind of you know like stuffing people with information that they probably won't ever use or have no sort of context to apply it in.
1: How did we get to this point? Well, yeah. um, you know, I think I think that's a great question. I don't know that I have the uh, the exact answer to it. I think I think part of it is that there are some, we do need mechanisms for evaluating people. And uh, it's it certainly is easier to grade a multiple choice exam with a Scantron machine. I haven't given one of those in a while. Do you do you even know, do Scantron machines still exist? Are they still in vogue or is there something newer?
0: I, I haven't been at a school or a college in so long <laughs> that, uh, yeah, but I, trust me, I'm all too familiar with Scantrons. It, 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 yeah.
1: So, you know, like th- that's much easier. You can be objective. Um you can you can grade 350 exams in a few minutes with a scan trial machine, but if you're talking about uh evaluating one-page weekly response papers, so like give me your best thoughts. What are you most excited about? What have you learned this past week? Doing that for 350 students if you're in one of these big courses, that just becomes really hard to yeah. do, especially when you have people who Um, are doing multiple things so you know i think professors aren't aren't just teaching that's one thing they're doing and many professors are really passionate about doing that but they're also doing other things like like their 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 research their mentoring the service and so um, life tugs on people in lots of different ways and i think sadly one of the things that has given uh has been the the kind of depth of of or depth is a wrong word, be, I was about to say intimacy. I'm not using that in this context. Um, the, the the kind of one-on-one contact that I think can be really useful for uh, a, a true educational experience. Yeah, I mean, it sounds
0: to me like what we need to figure out how to do is to scale a Socratic method of learning
1: to the masses. Yeah, that would be great if we could do that. And and you do see that happening at smaller institutions. And, and again, you see it happening also at an upper level seminars, so uh you know we're focusing mostly on on ways of improving, but I do think that many of these large institutions, as an example, the University of Michigan, does do a pretty good job optimizing based on the head it is dealt, and by hand being dealt, I mean the size of the undergraduate body and the need to educate huge mm-hmm. numbers of students and give them a high quality education. The fact that students can take a large introductory course early on, but then find time with with their instructors and professors later on in a more smaller setting. I, 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 I do think that universities are doing a pretty good job. What have
0: you seen change in the approach to learning that students take throughout your career, particularly, you know, when you're at, an elite school like Michigan, you know, which I know is one of the top public schools in the country, uh, in the wake of something like a college admission scandal, because every time I see that, the, the documentary about Rick Singer and I, I see those kids who look at this moment in their life as like make or break, it pales in comparison to the moment I got my acceptance letter to Berkeley it was like, oh, cool, I got the big envelope, great. I'm not gonna be totally destitute. But the way these kids react is like, this is li- a matter of life or death.
1: Yeah, I think that um we we you know I, I'm a parent of, of two daughters um who are school aged, and one is approaching high school and you can a- already begin to sense these kinds of conversations and sentiments about college begin to bubble up in parents awareness. And you know I think it is really unfortunate that we put so much um emphasis on on you know you've got to get into this one school and uh, the truth is there are lots of fantastic schools. And, and if you do well at any of a number of schools, you're in all likelihood going to do really well later on. And so I think the more we can uh, we can make students aware of that in high school and parents as well, the better for all of the kinds of chatter related phenomena that we see playing out yeah. among those kids and their parents. And it, it, it is, um, it is really unfortunate the kind of pressure that, that students and parents are, are placing on themselves. This is not to say that there should be no pressure. Um, I think it's very easy nowadays, like there's a, there's this common cultural movement towards, um, uh, you know, good vibes only. Is that, is that the phrase? Uh, <laughs> right. Is, is yeah. that, am I getting it right? So something like that. It's something like that. You know, that people have talked about this kind of toxic positivity movement where the goal in life should be to only be experiencing positive emotions at all times. A, that, that is, I, I don't think that that is possible. And I don't think it's possible because we evolve the capacity to experience negative emotions for a reason. Negative emotions in small doses help us solve all sorts of problems. Um, there's research which shows that experiencing a moderate level of anxiety is actually good for you. It enhances performance. Uh And so you, you don't want to eliminate all of that pressure. I think a little bit can be healthy. And let's face it, life is also filled with various kinds of challenging situations that we need to learn how to effectively grapple with And mm-hmm. and giving students opportunities to to practice doing that in a relatively safe space that is high school, if anyone can call that a safe space, uh, I think is, 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 is useful. So, yeah. I, you know, we don't want to get rid of pressure and, and aspirational goals, but I think we want to stop magnifying them to the point where they, they color everything we do and place huge burdens on us that ultimately detract from our thinking, performance, relationships, and health.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think that that makes a perfect segue into talking specifically about chatter. I mean, I think negative emotions are really a good way to think about this because I, I Dan Pink said this to me when uh, we were talking about his book, The Power of Regret. He said, we're over-indexed on positive emotions. And he said, you know, you want to have more positive emotions than negative emotions. He said, the problem is that if you don't have, know how to deal with negative emotions, you're going to have a lot of problems. Uh, but what is it that what's been the trajectory that led you to doing research on this and writing this book of all things? Because this doesn't seem like you know anything that you could end up on by following a linear path.
1: Well, um, you know my my trajectory to studying chatter, which you could think of as your um, introspection run amok, right? So you you you've got this amazing tool, which is the mind. And you could turn your attention inward to try to work through problems, and our ability to do that is um, undoubtedly one of the reasons why as a, as a species we've been super successful, figured out how to do things like build spaceships and uh, invent vaccines and solve all sorts of problems, right through this process of introspection, which often relies on language. So we've got this remarkable tool, but we know that this tool. Is, is pretty unwieldy. So a lot of the time when people experience challenges and hardships in their lives, they reflexively try to engage in this, engage this tool, but it it jams up on them. They end up ruminating and worrying in ways that, uh, can really make their life miserable, miserable in the sense of undermining their ability to think and perform, um, undermining the quality of their relationships and detracting from their physical and mental health. And so, um, I've always been interested in this puzzle of introspection. And my interest in it actually preceded college or high school. It actually went back to when I was a little kid, and my dad used to constantly tell me, whenever you experience a problem, try to use your mind, go inside, and use that phrase, tap into that voice inside you, and and find the solution. He was essentially teaching me from a young age. To rely on introspection as a tool. And it, and, and that was a lesson that, although I wouldn't admit it when I was a little kid and he was giving me these, um, these instructions, uh, you know, I'd roll my eyes, but I, I, I listened to what my dad said and I have, I did rely on introspection to my benefit throughout adolescence. And then I got to college and. I started taking psychology classes and, and, and what I learned in those classes was there'd been a lot of research on this topic. And, um, what the findings said goes back to the, the summary I gave earlier. On the one hand, introspection benefited a lot of people a lot of the time. But on the other hand, it was also the source of enormous misery and suffering. And so why that happened, why that happens, why is this sometimes beneficial, but other, other times harmful? That became a giant puzzle to me. And I started doing the kinds of things you were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. I started reading articles and following the the paper trail. What did this person say? And What did these people find? And I just became enamored with the question of why is introspection sometimes helpful and other times harmful? And most importantly, when we find it running awry, what can we do to bring it back on track? not to get rid of introspection. We don't want to get rid of our inner voice, but how can we really master it? So I ultimately went to graduate school to figure out how to use the tools of psychology and neuroscience to to weigh in on those questions. Um, that's what I started doing my research on early on, and I continue to do it ever since. Fast forward about 15 years after I started graduate school, I'm teaching a class of graduating seniors at the University of Michigan about these topics and um, it was a class called the science of self-control and it's always a really fun class to teach every week we dive into a different facet of people's inner lives and and how how they are sometimes mismanaged and how we can optimize them and the way the class was set up each week I give part I assign readings and students would send me their best thoughts and then I'd I'd kind of maestro a discussion amongst them. And on the final day of class, we basically turned the tides. And so the assignment for students was to come to me with questions that they had, having now become experts in this domain. And I had taught this course several times before, and, and one of the things that happens when you teach a course several times is you, you you tend to get the same questions over and over again. They're often really good questions, and it just so happens that those really good questions bubble up each time. So um, I I never really got stuck after a while teaching the class. But the last time I taught it, a student named Ariel raised her hand and said to me, why are we learning about this now? And that was a question that I, I had never gotten. I actually didn't know what she meant. I asked her to elaborate further. And she went on to say, well, we're learning about all these things we can do to think better, perform better, have better relationships, be healthier. Why didn't anyone teach us about this stuff earlier on in life when it could have actually benefited <laughs> us? We're now graduating from college. Like, you know, what's the point? Yeah. And and so my response to her was, number one, fear not. You, you know, you're in your early 20s. You will likely have opportunities to manage your emotions and use this information in your life. Um, So that was my quick kind of Uh, shorthand, unsatisfactory response. And what I, what I did after that was a classic teacher move. When you don't know the answer, I deflected. I said, that's a great question. What do other people think about that? And I deflected because I didn't have a great answer to her question. And that didn't leave me with a very nice feeling when I left that class. I, I kept thinking about that question over and over for the next few weeks. And it ultimately led me to do several things, one of which was, to begin doing research on what the implications of teaching younger kids about the tools of introspection and how to harness it are like would teaching students about this actually benefit them and it also led me to start working on 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 the book that um, that you read yeah. fifteen or so months ago, um, and that was another way to try to share what we've learned about this topic with folks out there in the world, and you know the genuine hope was that sharing this knowledge would um, actually provide people with useful tools that they can implement to, to live better lives. Yeah, well it's funny
0: because I laughed when she, she said, why are we learning this now? Because that was kind of my thought exactly. That is often my thought exactly when I have conversations like this, like damn it, if I knew this when I was in college, God, I would have saved myself so many heartaches. Um, but I want to you know, start with a quote from the book and this is kind of out of order, but I thought this would be a, an interesting place to start. Uh, you say our verbal stream plays an indispensable role in the creation of ourselves. The brain constructs meaningful narratives through autobiographical reasonings. In other words, we use our minds to write the story of our lives with us as the main character. And it got me thinking about the external messages that we internalize that become our internal voice. So, you know, it made me wonder, you know, what role do parents play in shaping that inner voice? you know, I mean, every parent, I think, in the heat of the moment, will say something that, you know, is hurtful to a child. Like, there are things my mother said, I'm not, not going to repeat them here because I thought at the time they were so awful. And yet, I, part, part of me wonders, so like, what has been the long-term impact of that on this internal voice that
1: is going on in my head? Well, um, parents do play a profound role in shaping our, our inner voices. Um, let me say that again. Um, uh Parents do play a profound role in shaping our inner voices because we often hear the things that our parents say to us. We repeat those messages in our heads and they can become internalized as part of our of our um, uh, internal narrative. Now, one, one message that often gets lost in that discussion is this idea. The idea, even the way you pose the question to me, suggests that the path is one way. Our parents influence how we talk to ourselves. They shape the way we think about ourselves. There is a there's a there is some truth to that, but it is much more complicated than that. Uh, number one, what we say to our parents are, actually feeds back to influence how they talk to themselves as well. So it, it's a dynamic process, and it it's it's recursive. It goes back and forth. Secondly. We also know that our our peers and our the culture around us also play a role in shaping how we talk to ourselves. Early on in life, we're more heavily influenced by the conversations we have with our parents. But as we age, the role that our friends and and teachers play in influence and influence in the way we think about ourselves begin to play a more prominent role. Now, the the last point that I'd love to emphasize is that it's easy to think about all of this happening in a very passive sense, right? Like I I say these things to my daughter and she they then get embedded in her psyche and continue to haunt her throughout time. But human beings are agentic. Um, we don't just mindlessly, passively hear these messages and then receive them as truth. We also have the ability to engage with the things we hear, the information we hear. We can dispute those ideas. We can elaborate on them in infinite ways. And and, and, and I think it's really important for, for people to understand that, that um, in these narratives we ultimately construct, we have a powerful role in steering those narratives. Uh, Sometimes we do it more actively than than at other times, but there is an important sense of agency that exists in that self-authoring equation. Mm.
2: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
0: I'm so glad you brought up uh, adolescence because I think that in particular is a really challenging time when it comes to this internal narrative. I mean, in my mind, you know, for example, I was a Indian kid in a predominantly white town in Texas. And I remember I didn't invite my parents to open house. And my dad's like, why? I was like, because your accents are embarrassing, which is silly now, but you know, when you are in this sort of, uh, position of like just profound insecurity as an adolescent or as a teenager, you know, as I joke, like if there's any phase of life, I would happily never go back to it's being a teenager because you just, you know, you're a giant asshole and your parents are the most awful people in the world. Suddenly, what is going on there in terms of our internal narrative? Like what
1: is happening? Well, that's, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big question. (laughs) And, um, I would say that number one, again, there's variability, right? Like, so, um, I know some people who think back to high school as the glory days of their, of their life and they would like nothing else than to go back to that moment in time. And instead they would like to get rid of, you know, the the time period of being a parent to little kids, which they associate with being absolutely miserable, sleep deprived and so forth. So. Uh, I think number 1 we've got to got to realize that there's there's huge variability in terms of um how people navigate through these different life stages. Having said that, sure, adolescence is tough. We are still number 1 our brains are still developing, growing, including um infrastructure that we use to regulate our emotions. Uh number 2, we haven't actually had the experience the trial and error process of learning how to manage our emotions effectively, um, you know i often um, so I do a lot of work on on self control and emotion regulation, which you can think about as the scientific study of the of the tools we possess for managing our emotions for amplifying or diminishing them and what i 've learned both in formal study but also talking to folks uh, all over the place is that a lot of us stumble on tools to manage our emotions throughout our lives. Sometimes our parents teach us things that are helpful or not. Sometimes we just kind of figure out things that work for us through a trial and error process. Um, we're just, I would argue, beginning to do that in the early portion of our lives. As we age, we get a lot more experience, a lot more trials under our belt to, to figure out what works for us and what doesn't. You've probably heard the phrase, with with age comes wisdom. Um, we also know that with age comes a higher level of, of emotional stability and happiness. There's this wonderful finding that, that um, shows time and again, as people age and get older, uh, as long as their physical health remains intact, older people are actually happier than younger people, which it, it, I, I found that to be very surprising when I first came across that that research. And one of the reasons why researchers think that is is because as you get older, you become more skilled at at learning how to navigate life's dilemmas. I know now that when I'm challenged with something that feels really awful in the moment, I know that it'll get better in a couple of of days or weeks time. I know that because I've been through it before. I have those kinds of battle wounds and I've learned from them. And so if we go back to adolescence, we're just at the very beginning stage of that, of that learning process. We're getting bombarded with all sorts of emotionally provoking issues. We don't necessarily have, uh, the hardware that we possess for managing our emotions isn't necessarily fully developed. We're being infused with hormones that can play a role in pushing our emotions around in all sorts of unpredictable ways and as a result uh we're we're a lot less predictable i would argue than we are later on in life yeah. um now that that paints a pretty negative portrait but you know what? i i know plenty of adolescents who who are quite happy and adjusted too so um so so there are ways of navigating it but i think also just just recognizing why adolescents can be so turbulent that in and of itself i think is really important um if I could add just one yeah, point please. more to this conversation, Um, I think we tremendously under underestimate the power of normalization. One of the reasons I wrote my book was to really normalize the fact that a, we all have an inner voice that manifests in different ways. And most of us have experienced chatter in the form of these negative, um, thought loops at some point in our life. Um, not everyone is aware of that because we don't always talk about our inner worlds to other people. But what I've what I've learned is that when people realize that they are not alone in in suffering from an inner voice run amok, that provides them with a sense of comfort and understanding. And I think normalization as a tool is something that we could do a lot more to uh, to teach people about. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, I guess you know, now that explains why the same things that seemed like the end of the world when I was 15 are just you know, a, a problem that will be gone
1: tomorrow when I'm 44. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You, and, and, and I mean, I would throw it back to you and, and, and say like, when did you have the realization that that would be the case?
0: Oh, um, well, you know, I, I think it, part of it was from building a business. I mean, I was thinking about this. Somebody had asked me in an interview once, you know, I, I mean, I'm an avid surfer. I was at least for the past 10 years. I'd been living in Colorado, so I stopped. But like, what is it that, that surfing gave you? I was like, well, you go out and get your ass handed to you by a big wave. Suddenly, the fact that somebody writes you a one-star book review just doesn't seem that significant. And you're like, yeah, I almost drowned today. That's, you know, it, it, it puts things
1: in perspective,
0: I guess, you know, which you get with age.
1: Well, you know, that's, that's one, one theme that runs through chatter at, uh, is the role that being able to zoom out and look at the bigger picture and attain that perspective, um, that that plays as a really helpful tool, um, for managing our, our emotional life. And, and there are lots of ways to get perspective. And so I love the fact that you brought up surfing and, uh, even a negative experience there. Um, this is one of the reasons why people, uh Believe that experiencing the emotion of awe can be a powerful antidote to negative emotional experiences. When you experience the emotion of awe, which, by the way, you can get from positive um, experiences in the world, like watching an amazing sunset or looking at a mountain peak, or negative or like negative events too, like uh, people are often awe-struck with awe in a negative way when they imagine the vastness of space and emptiness but when you have that experience of awe um what you you basically recognize that there's this um this vastness to the world right like it is bigger than me and that's a very powerful way of putting yourself in perspective it actually leads to what we call a shrinking of the self we feel smaller when we're contemplating something vast and indescribable and when you feel smaller so do your your worries and and i think that is something we experience We naturally learn over time. I think where the opportunity to help people is earlier on is to to give them tools that hasten the pace at which they develop that awareness of zooming out, experiencing awe as a tool to help them manage their inner world.
0: Well, let's talk um, about rumination in particular, because I think that to me is, you know, where this inner voice really just starts to wreak havoc on our lives, at least it did for me. And I think this is a common one for a lot of people. Um, you say that uh, verbal rumination concentrates our attention narrowly on the source of our emotional distress, thus stealing neurons that could uh, better serve us. In effect, we jam our executive functions up by attending to a dual task, the task of doing whatever it is we want to do, and the task of listening to our pained inner voice. Neurologically, that's how chatter divides and bursts our attention. And I think for me, um, this is the place I saw it was with a breakup. And some of this just made me laugh, where you talk about the fact that people feel compelled to talk to others about their negative experiences. And we just share this repeatedly. And you say repeatedly sharing our negative inner voice with others produces one of the great ironies of chatter in social life we voice the thoughts in our minds to the sympathetic listeners we know in search of their support, but doing so excessively ends up pushing away the people we need most. And you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, it becomes that breakup where your friends like, dude, we're done hearing about this same bullshit over and over again. Um, I remember it took me six months before I could put an end to the rumination. I would go to my therapist's office and I think somewhere in the middle, he's like, you realize we're having the same conversation every week, right? And my rumination was literally Replaying every moment of this breakup in my head and trying to analyze, like, if I had done this differently, would it, the outcome have differed? And then finally, I don't know what it was. I woke up one day. I was like, wait a minute. No matter how many times I replay this, the outcome is still exactly the same.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the paradox of rumination, right? So you, you, in, you engage in rumination because you've got a really good mind and you want to solve a problem and you're used to using this mind to solve problems that you encounter throughout your life. So it makes sense, right? There's a problem. I have this breakup. I want to fix it. So let me try to work through it. But once you, once you start thinking about this negative experience, you zoom in very narrowly on the features of the experience that actually drive the negative emotions. That makes it really hard for you to think objectively about the experience. So you start instead just spinning over and over and over again. You said for six months, that's not uncommon, right? When we experience really stressful, uh, intense experiences that are unresolved, we keep trying to gnaw away at it, even though doing so simply digs us deeper and deeper into the hole of rumination that, and, and, and that act, um, has all sorts of negative uh, effects on us. I I actually think of this as one of the big problems we face as a species, which I I use that descriptor not to be hyperbolic, but I I, I use it because I know what rumination is linked to. It undermines your ability to think and perform, right? Because you only have so much attention that you can devote to focusing on anything at any given moment in time. If all of your attention is, is consumed by these ruminations, you can't do the other things that you want to need to do like your work or being a good partner or parent to someone else, right? Yeah. It's all consumed by the rumination. Then let's go to relationships. You're already not listening to the other people talking to you because you're so focused on your own problems. But then we know that when people experience strong negative emotions, they're highly motivated to share them with other people they they want to share it not just because they want to bring other people down they want to share it because they want to get support they want emotional support they also want cognitive support they want help the problem is you're 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 like just spinning in your head so you start talking to someone and and initially they're very friendly and receptive one would hope if they're a good friend or partner the problems are still spinning in your mind. So you keep talking over and over and over. And that's how you get to the situation of your therapist telling you, hey, we're talking about the same thing over and over again. Are you not listening? And that's how you can create friction in relationships that ultimately lead those relationships to degrade. So we've knocked out your ability to think and perform. We've now knocked out your relationships. Let's take a, a small 60-second detour to talk about your health, right? You're You're thinking about these problems over and over subjectively. That makes you feel bad because you're basking in the misery of the situation. But what is also happening behind the scenes is you're, you're, you're mobilizing your body to deal with potential problems. And, and so your, your physiological infrastructure, if you will, is, is working on overdrive and that's exerting a wear and tear on your body that we know can be physically damaging. That's how stress. Kills people, right? It's, it's not that you experiencing stress per se is bad. Your ability to experience a stress reaction is useful. It's when your stress response gets activated and remains chronically activated over time. That's how you get stress predicting things like heart attacks and certain forms of cancer and all sorts of other gobbledygooks, which is not a technical term, but you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and that is the, I mean, that's the, that's, that's what is at stake here. And that is why I think understanding what our inner voice is, how it can conspire against us, and most importantly, familiarizing ourselves with things we can do to manage it is a hugely important task that um, we all face. Yeah. Well, I think that the natural follow-up question for
0: me was going to be, then, how the hell do you make it stop? Because I remember thinking to myself, hey, I'm post the unmistakable creative. I've talked to people like you for 10 years. I should be able to get through this like a champ. I have all these tools. And in the face of, you know, dealing with this problem myself, I remember mentor Greg said to me, he's like, when it's happening to you, it's the worst problem in the world because it's happening to you. I felt so paralyzed despite knowing all the things that I do from having conversations that I've had with people like you.
1: Well, I think, you know, then what I would want to do is is sit down and, and figure out what are the tools that you are using to try to manage this are they the right tools and are you actually using those tools in those instances um, there are many situations in which people know the tools that are out there but they're not applying them that's one way i think this breaks down another place this breaks down is um, sometimes we, we we use the wrong tools for us so you know in my book i i Cover about 27 different tools. Um, they're all listed in the back. Um, you know, as you know, you've read the book. It's not a how to book. It's a book about the mind and how it works, but I, I, I distill all the tools in one place in the back for easy kind of review in case people want a refresher. What I would love to have been able to do at the end of the book is, is basically tell people these are the six things you should do to manage your chatter effectively for the rest of your life. And if you do these six things, you will be much happier until you die. Uh, this is a question I often get asked by media. What are the two things you can do to manage <laughs> your chatter? My response to that as a scientist and as a, a human being is, I can't give you those six things. What science has done a good job of doing is identifying the different tools that are out there profiling how they work with precision. What we have not yet figured out is what combinations of tools, how to prescribe them in the sense that, like, these are the three things that you should do to deal with this kind of problem and these are the seven things you should do to deal with this other kind of problem. I I genuinely believe we will get to that point in our scientific knowledge but we are not there yet. And so, the advice I give to people who are motivated to manage their chatter, which is Anyone who's ever experienced it, which is most people, um, familiarize yourself with the tools. They're not, there's a lot of complexity that went into their identification, but at the end of the day, a lot of the things are pretty straightforward and start, start doing some self experimentation, right? Try a few, to, try a tool out. If it works, keep doing it. Layer on another tool. See if you get an additional bang for your buck from that. And in so doing, the hope is that you can identify the, the cocktails of tools that work best for you. I have personally done this myself and I can tell you that I have become much, much better at managing chatter as a result of these tools. I now, I now have like three or four things I do without fail when I detect chatter brewing. I've, I've done something called, I've developed an implementation intention. This is what we call an if then plan. I've rehearsed ahead of time. If I find myself going down the rabbit hole of rumination, then I'm going to use distant self-talk, and use my name to coach myself through the problem I would give advice to someone else. I'm going to use temporal distancing. I'm going to imagine how this is going to uh, feel a year from now. And I'm going to think about how I've dealt with similar experiences in the past. I'm going to go for a walk in a green space to recharge my attention, give me an opportunity to experience awe, which will broaden my perspective. And if those three things don't work, I'm going to call up someone from my chatter board of advisors, people who are particularly adept at not just being emotionally supportive to me, but being supportive and helping me work through the problems. So I've got these different plans that I activate without even thinking when I find the chatter brewing. And I do find them helping. So my advice to you would be to start developing those kinds of implementation intentions and, and, uh you know, report back. Let's have a part two in which you tell me how they've worked. And, and <laughs> if they haven't, we can go further. But hopefully they will. Yeah.
0: Well, there's one other part of this I want to talk about, which actually makes a, a perfect segue from that, because I remember uh, I had uh, Amy Chan, who had wrote a book on the science of heartbreak here, and I was talking to her about what happens when we stalk our exes on social media, And she said, that's basically like emotional cutting. You are basically in a relationship with somebody who's no longer in a relationship with you. But uh, you actually say in relation to social media that the human need to self-present is powerful. We craft our appearances to influence how people perceive us all the time. This has always been the case. But then social media came along, uh, but then along social media came to give us exponentially more control over how we do this. It allows us to skillfully curate the presentations of our lives, the proverbial, proverbial photoshopped version of life with the low points and less aesthetically pleasing moments left out. Engaging in this self presentation exercise can make us feel better, satisfying our own need to appear positively in the eyes of others and buoying our inner voice. But then you go on to say, although posting glamour shots of ourselves, uh, you know, causes us to feel worse. That's because at the same time, we're motivated to. Uh, present ourselves positively, which may lead us to feel better, but we're also driven to compare ourselves with others. And social media switches the social comparison hardware in our brain into overdrive. And I can tell you firsthand, this happens to me when I see friends of mine who have bigger podcasts or friends of mine who publish books. I'm like, wow, okay, that guy hit the New York
1: Times bestseller list. I'm so not like successful at all. Come on. When, when you, when you see that, there's an expletive usually in the inner monologue too. No? Yeah, of course.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's like, what the fuck is this guy doing that I'm not? So
1: be, you know, I, I mean, I, in those instances, these are all friends of mine. Keep in mind. Of course. I go Joe Pesci when that happens. um, (laughs) So, um, completely. Well, so, you know, this is, we can have a whole other conversation on social media. I've been researching social media since the late 2000s and what's, what's so interesting about it is so you could think about social media as this, this new ecosystem that was created, that we embraced and we just jumped into it without really understanding how it was going to impact us and how it, we would engage with it. And social comparisons are one piece of that puzzle. Um, we are constantly comparing ourselves with other people and that is, um, we are a social species. It's how we derive all sorts of really useful information. Uh, you know, we often talk about, um, uh, social, um, comparisons as a bad thing, but they can be really good for us too. Right. So, um, they can make us feel better. They could, they could be a source of resilience when we imagine how we're faring compared to others who may be less fortunate. Is so that the way of mo modulating our mood, um, they can provide us with important pieces of information that tell us how we could possibly do better. So the person who is excelling and, and doing better than us, how can I learn from them? So the social comparisons aren't toxic per se. The problem with social media is that um, they give us this opportunity to portray ourselves in these incredibly glamorous ways. And then that's really the only thing that we are exposed to when we go on some people's sites. So it's like we are just put into the vortex of everyone is doing better than me. And that can lead to a sense of inferiority envy, and, and the negative emotions that that follow. Um the, the flip side is there is some research that that shows that viewing your own social media profile can actually be a source of resilience because the flip side is true there, right? Like you've You've curated your own highlight reel. So now when you look at that, oh yeah, life isn't too bad. You know, I may not have hit that list, but look at all these other accomplishments I have. So, um, what, you know, social media, I think it's right now, uh, it's interesting. If you look at social media over time, at one point we thought it was great. It was going to connect the world. Then it became toxic. Then it became great again. And now it's, I think in, in the negative zone. Um, social media is a new, environment and, and it's environments aren't good or bad. It depends on how you engage with it. I think being aware of how to strategically interact with social media so that you're, you're, you're navigating that technology in a way that serves your goals well. Um, I think that's a real challenge. And if you think about, if you draw an analogy between social media and the offline world, we get a lot of, practice and guidance in how to navigate the offline world. By the time you're a little kid, your parent is teaching you, hey, here's the way you talk to people in this place as opposed to this place. These are the neighborhoods you should go, you know, you shouldn't go into. These are neighborhoods you should. We don't get that kind of direction when it comes to social media. And, And I think we need it. And I think this is where the science can be really helpful, right? If we could tell people, hey, look, if you if you find yourself going to these kinds of sites where social comparisons are going to be of the envious sort like maybe stay away from those and use social media to do these other things more i think that would do a great service to society if we could transmit that kind of information
0: um well in the interest of time i have uh, one final question or two last questions around this so i was driving to uh my dad's office he's at, at Tenured professor, and he's almost retired, so he's letting me use his office. And I was listening to an episode of our podcast, and it just got me thinking. And this made me want to ask you about this. As creatives, uh, obviously, this inner voice plays a huge role in the life of any creative person. There's sort of this inner crit- critic and this inner supporter. And it got me wondering sort of when I'm listening, for example, to somebody like you on a podcast like this, or when I'm reading a book, what is happening in the inner voice? in terms of facilitating my creative self-expression because it, I realized 98% of everything I create comes from probably two to three sources, uh, much to my mother's dismay, often conversations with her that have pissed me off, um, conversations that I have with people on this podcast and books that I've read. And so I was wondering, what is happening in the inner voice when it comes to when- creative creativity? Like how are well, we think, translating what we're consuming using our inner voice into creative self-expression? I guess is the question.
1: Well, so you know the inner voice often gets a bad rap because when it turns into chatter can be so harmful. What I like to remind people of, and I'm thankful to you for asking this question, is that the inner voice is a an amazing tool of the mind, and it can be heavily involved when it comes to creating and be cre- being creative. So you can divide thinking uh, in a very coarse way into uh, a kind of verbal versus visual processes. And the inner voice is part of that verbal side of of the thinking process. And oftentimes we are working through ideas using language and creating new connections and stories and integrating information. Um, We're using our inner voice to simulate possibilities for the future. So when I'm trying to like think creatively about how to respond to how to put together a new creative presentation. I'm, I'm, gaming it out and simulating it with my inner voice. When I'm trying to work through a problem that I need to work through in order to get to a creative solution, I'm often relying on my inner voice to create a narrative to help me make sense of what is happening. Um, so your inner voice is involved in that creative process in in a variety of different ways because your inner voice is involved in, in thinking, um, uh, and, and period. So it's a, it's a this is this is one of the reasons why it's so unfortunate when people get stuck in that ruminative mode because then it it precludes you from using your inner voice for those creative pursuits because you that resource that we possess is now being used for the dark side of worry and rumination. Yeah. Well. You know, it's funny you say that because I
0: think that I've run across this variation of these exact words in virtually every famous writer's uh, works about writing, whether it's Anne Lamott, whether it's Stephen Pressfield, uh, whether it's Danny Shapiro, all who basically say like, no writer sits down at a blank page and says, yeah, I'm awesome. I'm going to kill this today. They almost all start off with this just, you know, profound sense of insecurity. In fact, my my favorite quote from uh, Danny Shapiro's book, still writing about this, is that masters
1: of the form quake before the page. Hmm. Oh, I, I love that. That is great. And there's a, you see, that's you've you're normalizing this for all writers. Um, I mean, ab- absolutely true. I mean, the, the people ask what writing a book was like, and you've experienced this many times. Um, it's filled with highs and lows, and you know, oh my God, are are are, are the words the worst? Are, are, you know, is it all crap? Is it great? And um, it's <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge roller coaster. So yeah. having the tools can certainly help. Yeah, no doubt. Well, this has been
0: really, really fascinating. Um, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish
1: all of our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What do I think makes someone or something unmistakable? I think it is the combination of and real passion and conviction coupled with substance, uh, in the sense that there is, um, there's real energy behind an idea. Um, but the I, but there also has to be an actual idea or content there, um, to be energized about, uh, you know, and you, you could have situations where you just have a person who's full of energy, but there's nothing beyond that energy. And the flip side is you can have an idea that's really beautiful, but, um, but no one to drive it. I think when you put those two things together, you get something that is unmistakable. Beautiful. Um, well, I can't thank you
0: enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your book, uh, your research, and everything else
1: you're up to? Um. Well, thanks for having me on for uh for a truly fun and uh stimulating conversation. Uh, uh folks can get more information about me, my research, my book at www.ethancross with Um lots of information there. They could sign up for newsletter um, and uh get some other goodies. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that